sunny one shine so sincere and sunny one so true oh sunny one so true sunny one so true This is hell. Thank you for tuning in to This Is Hell. Um, it's Wednesday, June 6th, if you're listening live. And Chuck is usually speaking right now, but instead you get me, Lindsay Gorey, talking to myself. Nobody else is here. So Chuck is preparing for his surgery tomorrow. If uh, you needed an update... It's his last surgery tomorrow, so send him your best vibes. Filter out any bad vibes or medium vibes. Give him your best, because that's tomorrow. And we're going to be replaying an old episode today, so that Chuck can go get a COVID test, make sure he doesn't have COVID, and then quarantine the rest of the day so to make sure he doesn't get COVID by tomorrow. I think so far so good. I haven't heard anything and now dan has healed from covid so we're on the up and up here okay so yesterday we heard from kate mann who has been on our show before in 2017 and kate talked a lot about pregnancy and the criminalization of pregnant women and also misogyny as since her time in 2017 she wrote another book Uh, And it is entitled, Entitled. Uh, I forget the, (laughs) I forget the the subheading right now. How, uh, you know, it's about misogyny. Um, I was posting it on Instagram yesterday, so I probably should remember it, but it's deleted now. So anyways, we have Kate Mann in 2017 talking about the logic of misogyny. And the reason why I wanted just keep going with Kate Mann and go back to what she said about misogyny is because like Chuck was saying yesterday we still have all these reverberations of the trauma that the Supreme Court is triggering in all of us about you know our reproductive life our our existential (laughs) you know whole thing so and it's hard it's hard it's i've been feeling a lot lately and i'm tired of talking about abortion especially like we can't even talk about periods we can't even talk about how fertility actually works it can't even teach us that in school but now we all have to like talk about everybody's abortions like it's just so annoying so let's just go back to misogyny i guess like back to the this one is also you know full of terrible stuff though and it's it's just how that's i guess how i'm feeling too we're two days after there was like a mass shooting like 40 miles away from where we record the show in highland park so yeah we are really in hell we didn't need to be saying that for the last 20 years but so yeah just a content warning on this article we're gonna be talking about violence against women or violence perpetrated by men, however you want to 
frame it, it's violent. So without any further ado, because I have a lot to get to here with our question from hell, which is, which is, <laughs> I have it here. Don't, don't worry. I don't, I remember it's, what are you blowing up in honor of America? So it's Wednesday now or two days post the 4th of July. And so I want to know what did you blow up? to honor America. So I'll read your responses after we play back this interview. And we also have a very rotten history for today that I'm going to read later. And I believe that's it. So here we go. Back five years. Remember, this is five years ago with Kate man who was also on our show yesterday so if you're listening on wnur when we play these back to back if you were just listening to interviews with kate man that was recorded on june 5th 2022 and this now that we're going to play not to confuse you is from 2017 so we can kind of compare and contrast uh, our thinking from the last five years with kate man so alrighty. Enjoy. This is hell. Misogyny isn't just some disturbed nut hating women. It's a lot more than that. It's an entire system that perpetuates a social order. Here to tell us what misogyny really is and how it affects all of us all the time, Kate Mann is author of Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Welcome to This is Hell, Kate. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. You can find out more about Kate by going to her website, katemann.net. That's M-A-N-N-E. And you can follow her on Twitter, at Kate underscore man. Kate is an assistant professor of philosophy at Cornell University, having previously been a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows from 2011 to 2013. So we have to define misogyny first. Is misogyny beyond sexism? Is it bigger than sexism? Is sexism a subset of misogyny? I, I know there's a lot of questions really fast, but I'm, what's the difference between misogyny and sexism? Yeah, no, that's a great set of questions. I actually think that misogyny and sexism can come completely apart. Um, for me, sexism is an ideology. It's a set of beliefs. It depicts women as less capable in masculine-coded pursuits, whereas misogyny I think of as analogous to a law enforcement system of patriarchy, which tries to expel women from um, those domains when they enter them and tries to keep them excluded from them. So I think you can have people who are uh, not, not really sexist anymore. They no longer really believe women are inferior. They just wish we were. So is sexism then the way misogyny manifests itself within our culture? And if that is the case, then why don't we just call sexism misogyny instead of sexism? So I think it's one of the ways. It's something like wishful thinking. So if you want someone to be, say, not doing computer science or philosophy or business or a particular sport, then it's great to have a sexist theory, which makes them out to be not qualified or capable or competent, even if they manifestly are. But I think there are other ways misogyny manifests itself, 
It needn't have this theoretical dimension. It can just be violence. And it can be forms of reaction that are punitive and resentful and hostile, which uh, it serves to expel women from masculine-coded domains without being um, via these beliefs or representations of women as inferior. It can just be out. The message can just be get out. I was mentioning this in the introduction, that misogyny is more than the single act of an individual hating women. And you make that... uh case clear in your definition of misogyny. But um, when we consider that misogyny is more than the single act of an individual hating women, why is it important to realize that, that, that it's not just somebody's own psychiatric or psychological problem, that it's an individual's act? Why is it important to realize that about misogyny, that it's more than just an individual with uh, a disposition towards hating women? Yes, excellent question. It. I think there's a tendency to make misogyny inaccessible to victims and targets of it. So if it's this kind of psychiatric condition, this deep psychological property of individual agents, then misogyny quickly becomes kind of inscrutable, very difficult to ascribe to people because, hey, I'm no one's therapist. Um, I don't know what's going on at a deep level of psychological explanation. But it does seem important that a morally loaded term like misogyny can be kind of owned by targets and victims in service of calling it out. And that has led me, among other things, to move to a victim or target-centered definition of misogyny, which takes it to be a property of social environments where women face certain kinds of hostility and hatred not because they're women in a man's mind, but because they're women in a man's world, historically. That is a historically patriarchal society that's changing, but hasn't yet fully changed. And I couldn't help but think about our gender binary system when I started reading your book, that how can you define misogyny within or outside of that system, because as you point out, that gender binary system is not accurate. You write that you regard the gender binary system where people are divided into two mutually exclusive and exhaustive categories of boys and men on the one hand and girls and women on the other as inaccurate and pernicious. If the gender binary system is inaccurate and pernicious, what impact does that have on misogyny? Can misogyny exist in a world that doesn't have a binary system when it comes to uh, gender identity? I think that there are forms of oppression here that are just inextricably connected. I think transphobia, a commitment to gender binarism, this uh, real um, anxiety about not being able to sort people and their bodies into two mutually exclusive and exhaustive categories of male and female that kind of anxiety and the bigotry it leads to, I think of that as inextricably bound up with misogyny. So there are multiple systems that I think intersect to produce this kind of toxic mess. And there is there are emphases that um, in my book are often on pet relationships or straight relationships to try to pick out some of the dynamics of misogyny that play out in that context. But I think it's a much broader phenomenon that I hope uh, others can speak to, um, particularly trans misogyny, which I think is 
a crucial phenomenon to dig into. You uh, mentioned misogyny leading to violence earlier, and you quote feminist legal theorist uh, Catherine A. McKinnon in a 1999 essay asking, "What or when will women be human? When? You write the question echoes in relation to sexual assault, stalking, intimate partner violence, and certain forms of homicide. These are all crimes whose victims are generally, though by no means always, women rather than men, and the perpetrators are generally, and sometimes almost exclusively, men rather than women. What does it say to you about men or their relationship with women when there are certain forms of crime, certain forms of violence that are committed nearly exclusively by men against women? Mm. So I think of this humanist rallying cry that women are not seen as fully human. I think of that as a mistake. And I think it's a really cruel mistake in certain ways because it tells women, if you could just make yourself human to the small percentage of men who um, who commit these sorts of acts, but it is almost exclusively men in cases like strangulation or practices um, such as um, certain forms of assault and harassment. Um, there's this just myth that if women could humanize themselves, then things would be radically improved. But the thing about gender relations is women's humanity is really needed. Women's reproductive labor, our service, as, as emotional laborers, as um, the kind of seamless, attentive, subordinates with a smile is how I sometimes think of it. It really would be surprising if women's human capacities weren't recognized, but when they're deployed in the wrong ways, at the wrong times, towards the wrong people, by the lights of men who have been toxic masculinity, I think that's when violence can arise. So the sort of theme of the book later on is that women are are human, all too human, and that's actually not enough to protect us from violence. You write that strangulation is torture. Researchers draw a comparison between strangulation and waterboarding, both mm-hmm. in how it feels painful, terrifying, and its subsequent social meeting. It is characterized as a demonstration of authority and domination as such, together with its gendered nature. It is a type of action paradigmatic of misogyny. Should we then view... This is such a hard question for me to ask. Should we then view strangulation as a crime akin to lynching with the same kind of negative imagery uh, and associated with racism? Should we, should When we hear about a woman being strangled, should we be thinking that this is misogyny, that this is akin to the horrible kinds of crimes that were perpetuated on African Americans? Yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm always cautious about thinking about gender and race in parallel because, of course, they intersect. And strangulation disproportionately affects women of color and African-American women in particular. So I think there are ways in which it's often helpful to just think of different systems of oppression that have an impact on people in ways that reflect multiple forms of identity that they and multiple social positions they inhabit. So that's sort of my general um, take on on the potential parallel. 
Um, I guess when it comes to strangulation, it's interesting that meta-analyses reveal it's, uh, I think I'm just quoting here from um, a paper that I cite in my introduction to the book um, by Archer, a meta-analysis shows it's an overwhelmingly male crime. Uh, well over 99% of uh, those who perpetrate strangulation are men. And again, we have to be really careful to distinguish between uh, the false claim that most or even a large percentage of men do this versus the true claim that it's almost only or almost exclusively men who do, which shows us that there's something about masculinity that can give rise to misogynistic actions quite easily under the wrong set of circumstances. And often empirically, it's when uh, intimate partners, female intimate partners, step out of line or fail to be sufficiently giving in the relevant man's estimation that we get these outbursts of dangerous and punitive violence. And you write about Lisa Henning's appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show back in 1990 using a pseudonym Anne, wearing huge glasses and a wig on the episode called High Class Battered Women. You quote her saying, particularly when you're fighting the judicial system, it's a very patriarchal system. These are good old boys and they hang in there together and we are up against a major, major problem. Then you add the major problem was partly her husband having legal impunity and knowing this too well. He could do what he liked without fear of legal consequences and what he liked, Lisa Henning testified, was brutal. She testified during a deposition for their divorce proceedings in 1986 that he had beaten her badly and notably had choked her. So how much is misogyny protected by law? Because you even point out how strangulation has not been as criminalized as it should be in the past. The penalties have not been as stringent as they should be. So how much is misogyny protected by law? I think it often is. In this particular case of Lisa Henning, formerly Lisa Puster, she was Andy Puster's ex. And when he was uh, Trump's potential pick for Labor Secretary, the Oprah footage came back to light. And one of the really creepy things that got to me about this case was Lisa um, now Firestein, who has since remarried, changed her name, completely recanted all of that testimony, testimony that People around her were convinced by, based on medical records, her lawyer said her claims weren't just credible, he just thought they were true, that Andrew Puster had beaten her badly and choked her, uh, so-called choking, better termed non-fatal manual strangulation. It just seems like there's this superficially, at least, puzzling capacity for women's experiences to be something they testify about. Women tell their stories, even using the language of patriarchy and a feminist rhetoric about old boys clubs. And then they take it back. They eat their words. And that, I think, gives the lie to the sense that women just need to tell their stories. Oftentimes, they tell their stories and then are made to withdraw them from the record. And you write that this is often 
caused by the gaslighting of abused women. Gaslighting is a form of emotional abuse where the abuser manipulates situations repeatedly to trick the victim into distrusting his or her own memory and perceptions. So how much does misogyny force women to question their own memory, their own reality, mm-hmm. their own perceptions? Yeah, that I mean, that ties into the other thing I wanted to say about the law enforcement aspect of this, the way that literal law enforcement protects misogynists. Um, so Andy Puster was a high-profile lawyer. It, it seems like if you grow up with the myth of the woman that if something bad happens to you by way of domestic violence or certain kinds of sexual assault, then you have this inference in your head. If if something really bad happens and I come forward and I tell my story and I report it, then people will sympathize and take action on my behalf and police will take me seriously. And I think this is a message that middle-class white women um, like Lisa um, Henning did probably grow up with to a certain extent. I know I did. And then it's tempting to think in light of the gaslighting and lack of reaction to many cases of abuse that involve potentially testifying against powerful men who are predatory or abusive. It's tempting to Holland's opponents, as philosophers say, go the other way. No one reacted, so I must be crazy. No one helped me. The police didn't care, so it must not have been a big deal. It's I must be imagining it. I must not have remembered correctly. I think that is at least implicitly the way these things often go, together with the fact that a victim's memories are often somewhat compromised by the act of strangulation that I focused on in the introduction itself. Uh, And I found this book incredibly enlightening. It made me realize the far more torturous life that women can go through. You write, why do these patterns of misogyny persist even in allegedly post-patriarchal parts of the world, such as the contemporary United States, the UK, and Australia? But is post-patriarchal any more or less real than post-racial? Because we have yet to have a guest on our show that actually believe we were ever in or even coming close to being in a post-racial world back in 2008 when some were suggesting the U.S. had become to some degree post-racial with the election of the first African-American president. So is post-patriarchy as fake as post-racism was? Absolutely. I mean, we're living in a white supremacist heteropatriarchy. And yeah, I think the allegedly, I probably should have italicized that because the idea that we're really post-patriarchal is absurd on the face of it. Um, now, I think when I started this project in 2014, there were there was more room for reasonable minds to disagree if they hadn't really been paying attention to some of these phenomena. Um, but I think the last year or so, I guess maybe the last two years really, has brought out some of the ways in which misogyny doesn't have to be subtle in order to go under the radar and not lead to serious consequences for the perpetrators and systems that enable it. We've seen brazen, crude, and incredibly damaging forms of misogyny just going on in public life. 
I believe our president is a rapist. And that is that's just nuts. Uh, you write that much progress has been made with regard to gender equality following feminist active activism, cultural shifts, legal reforms, and changes in institutional policy. Gains for girls and women in education have been specifically and especially, especially impressive, and yet misogyny is still with us. To you, what explains, despite the institutional reforms, misogyny's resilience in our culture? Can our system be tweaked to undo misogyny, or is the problem our system? Does it somehow either create or exacerbate hatred by men toward women? Yeah, and for that matter, hostility that women feel and channel towards women who are in positions of masculine-coded authority. We saw that, I think, with um, with Clinton uh, in terms of the number of white women who over half of those who voted voted for Trump over Clinton, which speaks volumes. So my sense is there is something about progress that we think it's not going to lead to backlash, but it's predictable that it will. So there's one model of progress where you think about people being less sexist and they have fewer sexist beliefs and they realize, oh, yeah, women can uh, write and do math and can compete in the academy in ways that are where historically people were genuinely skeptical about oftentimes. But the thing is that women doing well in those contexts, um, higher education being something that's, you know, very much my um, milieu, my bread and butter, my day-to-day life, that won't necessarily come as good news to those who want gender roles to be preserved and want women to continue to occupy certain kinds of social roles that they don't necessarily have the explicit belief that women should be um, more giving and attentive and loving and caring in ways that uh, mean she has to do too much emotional, social, as well as reproductive and material labor. But implicitly, when she says no or says, look, I I don't have to play nice in some particular way, get these markedly hostile, disproportionately hostile reactions, which effectively enforce women's traditionally feminine-coded virtues. And often they are virtues, but I want there to be uh, fewer double and differential standards about who has to evince them. Right, because uh, I was going to ask you how much is misogyny about imposing a giving, caring, loving, and attentive set of rules on women, uh, but yeah. more so, I guess, uh, how much is that justified by men? Because these are positive characteristics of any right. human being, giving, caring, loving, and attentive. Do they justify, do they rationalize this imposition of characteristics on women, something that men do not have to experience because they see these as positive characteristics? Absolutely. I think that's really astute. So the conclusion of my book is called The Giving She, as a nod to the Shel Silverstein children's book, The Giving Tree. Do you know that book? I think all yes, yeah, Americans yeah. do. I, I didn't grow up, being Australian, I didn't grow up on it. I saw one page of it and just freaked out. 
but because this <laughs> ideal, this <laughs> the fact that it was the she, the tree, the um, a gender tree, and the boy who the tree gives everything to her branches, her apples, eventually her trunk. She ends up this amputated stump, and the boy never says thank you. The tree keeps on saying sorry like eleven times, I think, and eventually there's this chilling line which is and this is after the tree's given everything to the boy who's now a man child the tree says um or the the narrative says and she was happy but not really and this line just never gets expanded on it's just haunting like dangles like this narrative so i think the thought is once you set up this ideal that many people point out has this in some ways, morally very attractive quality to it. But once you gender it, you set up a system where certain men are going to feel entitled, excessively entitled, and too little obligated to certain kinds of genuinely valuable moral goods. So in a way, a lot of the norms that misogyny enforces can be genuine moral norms, but they're over-enforced for women and tend to be under-enforced for men. I want more calls for men to support women. Um, and here, I don't mean to exclude non-binary folks. It's just not as clear to me exactly how these expectations play out. But yeah, I want a world in which these gender roles break down radically across gender lines and we have giving of a moral kind as well as a healthy amount of taking that isn't gender-coded. And also, I do want to get into a little bit of the aspect of uh, why men feel, uh, why, why they feel violated when women do certain things that are outside of what they see as their role. When it comes to uh, this kind of male privilege, if you will, you write, he may have long been accustomed to expect the compliance or performance of someone in your position. You yourself may have met his great expectations dutifully in the past. So when you cease to, he may well be resentful. He reacts as if you are in the wrong because from his perspective, you are in the wrong. You are misstepping or overstepping or deviating or wronging him. How much is misogyny... Uh, men feeling like women have insulted them personally when they are perceived as not being giving, caring, loving, and attentive. Do they see that as a personal attack on them? And does that explain to a certain degree uh, if you tell a, a man that they're being misogynist, just like you, if you tell somebody that they're being racist, it's something that they do not want to hear whatsoever because it is something that is slighting them on a very personal level. Absolutely. So they feel often, if someone is channeling misogynistic social forces, he, and I'll focus on a, a case of a man here for the moment, he'll characteristically feel that he's in the right, that she really is insufficiently caring or loving or giving, and that he deserves more or better, and that he is entitled to take what she hasn't given him and ought to have. So there's this kind of moral logic of misogyny that is itself deeply unjust and bankrupt, but I think it's a largely coherent system. And from the inside, once you're, once you're there, the more I looked at this, the, 
more I became pessimistic about the possibility of pulling people up short and correcting them in such a way that they didn't recoil even more from the allegation, much as um, you say uh, happens with allegations of racism. People are so defensive because they think they have the moral high ground, and oftentimes they're wrong. So that attempt to flip their sense of where they're socially and morally positioned tends to be a really hard move to pull off, especially from a historically subordinate social position. So if you're, say, a woman of color who's trying to call out a white man for his um, misogynoir, to use Moya Bailey's uh, term for the intersection of misogyny and anti-black racism, he's going to feel like he is being radically, having the, the rug pulled out from under his feet oftentimes. He felt that he was had a kind of moral um, entitlement to certain services and attentiveness and deference. And now suddenly he's being there's an attempt to place him socially as someone who's morally in the wrong, which tends to be yeah, it's a really hard move to pull off in a way that doesn't engender defensiveness. That doesn't mean it ought not be done. I think often it should be, but it's not the kind of thing that tends to lead seamlessly from second personal allegations or third personal descriptions to first personal admissions or confessions. It tends to be a social rift because of that attempt to flip hierarchies of a moral kind. We are speaking with Kate Mann. She is author of Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. You write, women may not be simply human beings, but positioned as uh, human givers when it comes to the dominant men who look to them for various kinds of moral support, admiration, attention, and so on. She is not allowed to be in the same ways as he is. She will tend to be in trouble when she does not give enough or to the right people in the right way or in the right spot. And if she errs on the score or asks for something of the same support or attention on her own behalf, there's a risk of misogynist resentment, punishment, and indignation. So she is the backbone of the family, and if she is not, people will hate her. How much does misogyny lead women to being, or being more, giving, caring, loving, attentive, being a source of admiration and support. But uh, how much does misogyny dictate that women have those qualities, and how much, in your opinion, does misogyny lead women to perpetuating misogyny? Yeah, I think to a, to a large extent, that is the kind of dynamic that plays out. Because if you have, I mean, picture someone who is essentially there are invisible electric fences, as with a dog. When you approach the invisible fence, when you violate certain boundaries, when you just fail to respect a certain order, you receive you know, an electric shock in a painful way. And I think that those sorts of... Um, that's a metaphor that actually didn't make it into the book because I thought of it later, but um, it... There's something about being effectively groomed or trained not to transgress in ways that would be verboten according to patriarchal norms and expectations that, yeah, I think turns women not into sexual objects in any straightforward way, but 
I am tempted to locate the contrast as being not between human beings and sexual objects, but rather human beings and human givers who owe their human capacities to a patriarchal figure, to a local patriarch. How much are women's everyday freedoms dictated by misogyny? And in what ways uh, does misogyny potentially dictate women's freedoms that some men and even some women may not recognize? How often do you see misogynistic practices taking place that you think others around you may not see the misogyny in that instance? Yeah, it's been interesting watching the Me Too campaign play out and There are points that are sometimes made that sexual harassment and different forms of sexual assault can vary greatly in harmfulness, which I think is is clearly true, but not really on point. We're talking about a whole set of social practices, both perpetrated and perpetuated by individuals, as well as social systems, that... I think really make for a very different social environment for, um, you know, say a boy and a girl growing up. There are real constraints that can be kind of subtle. um, And yeah, it's actually something I've been writing about more recently, ways in which there's a continuity between the obviously egregiously bad sorts of sexual assault and harassment, you know, the guy masturbating, you know, on the subway or, you know, just like stalking women in ways that are clearly constraining her freedom and a sort of set of enablements that um, a lot of people participate in, in ways that really say to her, look, your will can be overridden anytime and it's not really a big deal. Just don't try to take more than your fair share of moral attention. Give moral attention. Give moral succor and nurture and love. But don't complain too much if there's been some serious breach of your freedom. Kind of toe the line in that way. So I think there's a set of practices, some of them quite subtle, that, yeah, I think... Not only are there constraints on women's freedom, but often her freedom is resented. You write that misogyny is both a word we need as feminists and one we are in danger of losing. How are feminists in danger of losing the word misogyny, and what would that mean for the word and its meaning? So I began the project after the Isla Vista shootings of May 2014, and this 22-year-old man, Elliot Roger, had uploaded a video to YouTube after a series of similar videos in which he said he had been forced to endure an existence of loneliness, rejection, and unfulfilled desires, all because girls have never been attracted to him, he said. Girls gave their attention and affection and love and sex to other men, but never to me. It has been very torturous complaints in this plaintive way. And I think there's there's something about these cases that even though Elliot Roger uploaded this YouTube video and then drove as he had planned for his quote unquote day of retribution 
to the Alpha Phi sorority house at the University of California, Santa Barbara, with guns in hand, planning to eviscerate an entire sorority house full of women who luckily kept the door shut to him because his knocking sounded so loud and aggressive. But after this happened, and Roger had shot and killed two young women walking outside around the corner and seriously wounded a third victim, there were so many rank denials that this was misogyny. And look, I think there can be reasonable disagreements for sure about how to define misogyny and how to think about it precisely. That's part of the conversation my book is intended to open up. But there was such a belt and braces, throw spaghetti at the wall style of denialism in both the mainstream and conservative uh, media where commentators were just finding reason after reason after reason why this wasn't misogyny because it wasn't hating any and every woman just regardless of how well they served Roger. Uh, He loved his mother, was one of the defenses. He also killed men, which is true and equally morally important, but not apropos to whether those acts that I described were misogyny. It was just this huge reluctance to even take seriously the feminist diagnosis that struck me as as obviously correct, or at least um, the place the conversation should start. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's just this this weird tendency when women try to claim the moral spotlight by identifying the moral problems of misogyny they face, to deflect that and to derail and to alter the spotlight by saying, no, it's not that. It can't be that. Maybe he's a good guy or a golden boy or a nice guy. Those are some of the ways that we see denialism in the other direction by emphasizing his supposed good character as well as denying that she's faced something serious and gendered which is a form of social control applicable to her as a woman in a historically patriarchal world. Is an, I'm trying to figure out another way that uh, you can be in a denialist stage with misogyny. You write about the pernicious ignorance misogyny feeds and thrives on. Is misogyny then not intentional, that we simply don't know or realize due to our ignorance the negative impact of continued yet at times uh, brutal misogyny towards women? Can can we plead ignorance and unintended consequences? So I think often ignorance is, is no excuse. It's, so uh, the, the term pernicious ignorance is due to the epistemologist and black feminist theorist Christy Dodson. And I think questions about individual responsibility are tricky, and I think that often Dodson's framework leaves um, open individualistic questions about who's to blame, which I think is uh, the right kind of um, approach that she takes. I suppose what matters to me is showing how, yeah, it, it often is this sort of willful ignorance that stems from having a hostile reaction to a woman who's perceived as not giving enough or as violating certain sorts of patriarchal norms and expectations about 
keeping off his chest from Gamergate to entering positions of authority in politics to writing online as a feminist. You get these very punitive and hostile reactions that there's always another justification or is almost always another justification proffered. Um, I think you, you talked about misogynist um, tendency to rationalize, and that's absolutely right. So it's, it's not that she's a woman, it's that she's, she just seems smug or shrill or somehow self-centered or there's just a vague sense that she has committed some huge ethical breach, which, you know, might turn out to be real, but the kind of thing that goes unremarked upon when a male counterpart does the same thing. Um, and sometimes it's just completely manufactured. It's just this inchoate suspicion that she's, she doesn't really belong where she is. And again, that's kind of correct, but correct by the lights of morally bad and unjust gendered standards. What do you think keeps us from calling out patriarchy and misogyny more often? Why, it, why does it seem that patriarchy and misogyny are two terms that you never hear, not only in the news, but mm. discussed when you see roundtables on uh, local news broadcasts? Right. I think so part of my methodology in writing this book it probably sounds strange, but was to make myself as uncomfortable as possible and to really press in areas where I couldn't see why we rationally, we weren't calling this out more often and more boldly and candidly, but it felt extremely difficult to do so. And it often felt, and this is an interesting just piece of phenomenology that could have been idiosyncratic, but I, I now think it's probably not. I felt very guilty for bringing up the subject. There was so much guilt involved in trying to tease out this you know, set of concepts. And I think it is, again, that misogyny has this self-masking quality. If women are meant to be moral givers and provide moral succor in ways that are, you know, really, you know, picture a good giving tree then the last thing she should be doing is engendering a kind of uh, potential conflict or hostility with the boy come man-child of the world who just wants her to keep giving her leaves and apples and saying she's happy and if she's not really, who cares? Um, the thought would be she's really you know, being tapped. Stuff is being extracted from her and again an attempt to turn the tables morally and say you know what this is not it's not okay um that is actually directly contrary to the sort of moral role of being the one who provides and gives morally rather than the one who takes resources is mis if misogyny is the threat of punishing women and girls for not acting appropriately. How much does that depend upon their race, class, age, body type, disability, sexuality, uh, being mm -hmm. cis or trans? In, in that sense, does misogyny take on 
multiple forms. So somebody of one race, one class, one age, one body type, one disability would be experiencing misogyny in a completely different way. And if that is the case, does that lead to a lack of uh, solidarity and unity amongst women when it comes to misogyny because they experience it in very different ways? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's absolutely right that there's just no universal experience of misogyny. What links it is this punitive, threatening, hostile, controlling quality. But there are just so many ways of keeping and putting and shooting women down for having ideas beyond their station. And a lot of those are very much based on sexuality, class, race, being cis or trans, and yeah, like different ways of being embodied, um, including uh, forms of disability that, you know, this is, it's part of a general phenomenon where misogyny often involves reaching for whatever is available to take her down whatever hierarchy is salient. And so because of that, I think misogyny is very much um, prone to opportunistic racism, say. Um, And that is, I think, part of what I wanted to try to draw attention to in the book is ways in which, you know, it's not obvious that not believing a woman's testimony and calling her, um, you know, crazy versus calling her a bitch and worse and forms of violence and different ways of reacting in a sort of subtly taken aback way and downranking her in all sorts of other ways. Um, Ways of like play acting and catcalling and mansplaining in order to sort of take up a posture of authority, even when it's illicit. It's not obvious what unifies all of these sorts of practices. And I think once we understand their functional role in enforcing patriarchal norms and expectations that she's either perceived as or is a sort of representative of someone who transgresses against them. And we have a way of seeing that this phenomenon is, yeah, it involves like an almost, I don't want to say impressive, but um, (laughs) there's such a litany of techniques and mechanisms because what it's designed to do is to, yeah, these, I call them down girl moves. How much does misogyny or the tolerance of misogyny lead us lead to us allowing all their forms of social and economic injustice? Is misogyny the gateway hatred for all other forms of institutionalized and culturally accepted forms of hatred that create inequalities? Because I, I was just curious if maybe the mm. constant, I don't know if these are the uh, proper words, but constant subtle background uh, noise of misogyny allows us to then be racist, allows us to then be ageist, allows us to then be lookist, to be an ableist. Do you think misogyny contributes to us having more and more uh, stereotypes, having more and more bigotry towards other people? Yeah, no, it's, it's super interesting. I So I think they're probably an interconnected toxic mess, but I do think there's a causal aspect to this that hasn't been really theorized which, you know, this is speculative, but look, here's the hypothesis. Women's care and emotional labor, women's sympathetic, um, you know, nurturing um, stance towards locally dominant men within a patriarchal 
um, you know, heteropatriarchal households, that's been increasingly short supply. Um, you know, that's one sense in which these states of affairs do reflect social progress. But if you have a kind of huge social, um, if you have what amounts to, I almost want to call it sympathetic attention deficit disorder, then one thing you can get is a lot of punching down on the part of both men and women, women who feel overtaxed with emotional and social and sexual labor, and men who feel deprived of it, punching down towards the less powerful, including groups who are othered by being racialized or conceived of as, um, you know, immigrants who are, um, you know, either racialized or thought of in um, politically noxious terms, like as potential terrorists. So that sort of punching down aspect to it, ways in which when she's not caring enough, there's this huge rank sort of aggression socially that builds up and that makes people reluctant to be more caring and more prone to exclude and even be violent towards people who clearly need care, clearly deserve care. But they're turned away in ways that feel to me most plausibly to be explained sometimes by this very common, very ugly, but nonetheless explicable punching down phenomenon. One last question for you, Kate. We have been speaking with Kate Mann. She is author of Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Kate is an assistant professor of philosophy at Cornell University, having previously been a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows from 2011 to 2013. You can find out more about Kate by going to her website, katemann.net. That's M-A-N-N-E.net. And you can follow her on Twitter at Kate underscore man. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, mm. you might hate to answer, or our audience, is, go- <laughs> audience is going to hate <laughs> I live your in response. hell with this material, so this should be okay. How much did Hillary not win the Electoral College because of misogyny? And to what degree am I a misogynist, knowingly or unknowingly, for not voting for. Mm. So, yeah, that's no, that is not a hellish question. So, it is, I mean, but I'm not going to answer it. So, <laughs> I'll answer it. <laughs> that <laughs> proves it's a hellish question. <laughs> so, here's the question I'm most interested in How did we get into this position of Trump being viable in any, in any way? So there's the sort of wonkish, important question of how exactly, what exactly explains the election outcome, given that, you know, we went into it with, um, you know, everyone bar me thought that, <laughs> thought that Hillary would win. Um, I didn't. Um, but there's a question about, you know, the role of um, particular states and the Electoral College and blah, blah, blah. And that's not really my wheelhouse. Um, expertise-wise, I think misogyny absolutely explains a great deal of how we ended up with a completely incompetent, immoral, amoral, just sub-mediocre white man being a viable candidate for president. And that, I think, is what I wanted most of all um, in the, the last chapter of the book, before the conclusion, to explain how someone who 
you know, I absolutely think reasonable minds can disagree about whether Hillary would have been, um, you know, much better than Trump or infinitely better than Trump. But I think that ought to have been the relevant question. And I think some of the moral purity tests that were applied to her were not reflective of individual misogyny, but did reflect a kind of prevalent phenomenon of disgust that proliferated via social media toward her, such that people who were originally, um, you know, maybe prone to think of her in, in more neutral, critical, but not powerfully disgusted terms, um, and, you know, obviously this is just one mechanism that I don't want to ascribe to to you or anyone else in particular, but I think a lot of people, as the rhetoric of moral disgust amped up, it was very hard not as a morally serious person, and I found it very hard myself, not to pick up those aspects of almost um, viscerally catching disgust that were directed toward her, often unjustly. So I think there were there are lots of cases where it wasn't necessarily a reflection of individuals channeling misogynistic social forces, so much as you had this discourse surrounding her that made it um, at least easier to think of her as more morally disgusting than was warranted given the choice on the table. That, I think, is how I've come to think about it. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And the only thing I would I would ask is, that, I mean, do you, what impact do you think that Hillary would have had on changing the misogyny that does pervade our culture? We all hope that Barack Obama would have an impact on uh, the way we view race in this country. Instead, what it did is it amped up how horrible mm. uh, the people, the racists were in this country. So to what extent do you think she would have had any impact on the misogyny that pervades our culture? So I think, yeah, I'm pretty pessimistic. I watched the first female prime minister of my country in Australia, Julia Gillard, being called a witch, a bitch, a liar, a two-faced, um, Machiavellian, mendacious, um, incapable of reaching an actual view about matters of policy, having no principles, I mean, I, you know, I can just quote for paragraphs and people think I'm describing um, the rhetoric about Clinton because it's so similar. And really the only thing that these two um, women had in common was being women in positions of unprecedented political power in their respective countries and being kind of center, um, centrist just to the left of center, um, you know, roughly. Right. And, yeah, I think because of um, ways in which that left them vulnerable to genuine moral criticism from the left, as well as often spurious criticisms from the right, I think they were in a really disastrous position from the get-go. Um, I think something deeper will need to change socially. Partly, we will have to get better at realizing that women you know, moral um, imperfections can be understood in ways that are not exonerating, not uncritical, but also not hysterical. 
Kate, it has been a real pleasure having this conversation with you today. We've been speaking with Kate Mann, author of Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. You can find out more about Kate by going to katemann.net. That's M-A-N-N-E dot net. And you can follow her on Twitter at Kate underscore man. Thank you very much for being on our show this week. Really a fascinating topic and conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Really appreciate the conversation. Take care, Kate. Thanks, Chuck. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Hello again. If you're still listening live, you just heard an interview with Kate Mann from 2017. Kate Mann was just on our show yesterday, recording live, on her newer book. So the episode that you were just listening to was recorded after her book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny came out. And in 2020, she had another book come out, which is entitled, Entitled, How Male Privilege Hurts Women. So, I don't know, my stomach kind of hurts from talking so much about misogyny. So, I think it's time to read some responses to this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell being, What are you blowing up to honor America? What are you blowing up to honor America? So, this is very clearly a trick question here because... I'm not trying to honor America, but <laughs> let's see what our let's see what our listeners have to say on this topic. Okay. The last response Dan reports reading to this question, what are you blowing up in honor of America? was from James A. I blew you up, but you blew my mind. All right. So that brings us to our next response from Washik R. What are you blowing up to honor America, Washik? That is the institution of marriage. That's a good one. Uh, Neil C. What are you blowing up to honor America? Neil C. is blowing up the future. I guess that makes sense. Like. <laughs> I don't know. Honoring America, the future, I don't know. Do they go together? Let's see. Andrew S. says, what are they blowing up to honor America? Stone Mountain. I'm going to have to Google Stone Mountain. I don't know where it is. Chris C. is blowing up the bond of friendship and respect between the only people left who'd even look me in the eye. I'm assuming that they'd lose friendship and respect because their friends don't like that you would be honoring America and I have to say that some good you got some good friends there Chrissy all right Mark A this is our last response on Facebook says that in order to honor America they are going to blow up a pharmaceutical factory in Sudan um I'm not sure if I'm missing like a current event or something 
Some people might think it's good. This is good. Some people might think it's bad. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna dive into that conflict. Instead, I'm gonna read the responses on Twitter. After I read this rotten history, I need a little break between the last episode and this rotten history. Cause what does Chuck say? Go, get, uh, gross, goopy, globby, gory, 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 gory. Rotten history. I'm just gonna say it's gory, 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 because that's my last name, literally, Lindsay Gory. And this one is really gory and really gross, so, again, content warning. Close your ears if you have to, but this is true. So, this rotten history for the week of July 6th, that's today, Wednesday, July 6th, today, but this happened on July 7th, which Happy birthday, mom and dad. My mom and dad's birthday. My mom's birthday is today. My dad's birthday is tomorrow. So they're not listening, but <laughs> both my parents are cancers. Anyways, rotten history. On July 7th, 1893, 129 years ago this week in Bardell, Kentucky, a small town just a few miles across the Mississippi River from Cairo at the southern tip of Illinois, a mob of some 5,000 angry whites, angry white people, that is, gathered for a lynching. The focus of their anger was an African-American name, sorry, African-American man named Say J. Miller, who they suspected of murdering two young white girls named Mary and Ruby Ray. As was so often the case in such incidents, Miller had not received a trial, not only that, but the evidence overwhelmingly pointed to his innocence. His wife and two other witnesses had signed statements saying he had been out of state on the day of the killing. Several others had told police they saw a white man commit the murders. Even the girl's father said he was not convinced that Miller was the culprit. But the county sheriff had taken one witness aside and, by threatening to charge him as an accomplice, persuaded him to change his story and say he had seen a black man commit the crime. With that, Miller was handed over to the mob. After allowing Miller to make a public proclamation of his innocence, the mob tortured him and then hanged him from a telephone pole. Once he was dead, people in the crowd came forward to cut off his toes and fingers as souvenirs of the lynching. A common practice in those days. Needless to say, no one in the mob was prosecuted. The Chicago-based journalist Ida B. Wells later visited the town of Bardwell and tried to interview Miller's widow. Sorry, Miller's widow. <laughs> Wells reported that the woman had suffered a nervous breakdown and could not answer questions coherently. Well, I agree that is indeed rotten. So, I think we need some more questions from hell. Because there's heavy stuff this week. There's heavy energy this week. And uh, so, hopefully, blowing some stuff up made you guys feel better. I mean, it definitely triggered a lot of other people's and animals' trauma hearing all those fireworks exploding all the time. You know, in a world ravaged by gun violence, maybe fireworks aren't the best way to have a good time. That's just my opinion. <laughs> they're expensive and they're bad for the environment. 
They're bad for the environment. What do you think are in those things? They're chemicals. I don't know. I don't know what they are. But they can't be good. So. Anyways. <laughs> what am I blowing up to honor America? Um, something without harmful chemicals, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Like, You know what I'm blowing up? My everybody's grass lawns I'm blowing up all your grass lawns because I'm gonna wait until you know you stop spraying them with pesticides and then it's time to kill them they're a waste of water all right uh this week's question from hell again what are you blowing up to honor America we're at Twitter now so the hypocrite reader is blowing up a stylish black and white photograph from the 1960s in which I believe I have unwittingly captured evidence of a murder. All right. <laughs> uh, at, or Paul Nice Good says, you're gonna get a lot of people visits from the FBI for this one. I'm like, are we? I mean, I don't know. My social media handle is illegal underscore government. So I am already pretty sure the government has got their, you know, tabs open on me. And probably every one of you commenting on this, not just this question, but what can you do? If they're watching everybody all the time. How are they going to, like, know what one person specifically doing? That's where I think that we're fine. <laughs> all right. Uh... Anyways, to move on from my paranoia, at man on man something, treat every oligarch like a Russian oligarch? On man, at man on man at Yale. Okay, that's their name. They are blue, they are blowing up gender reveal tactical nukes to honor America. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I think that's really funny because one time I was driving through I think I was in Missouri or maybe I was leaving Oklahoma I don't remember but there was a fireworks store it was both a fireworks store but it also advertised itself as a gender reveal store and this was like 20 April, like April 2021 I think I saw this it was not long after that fire that had been started by gender reveal fireworks in I think California but there are so many fires these days who can keep track. Anyways, on to the remaining responses to this week's question from Hal. What are you blowing up to honor America? Anarchademic says cases of monkeypox. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might, that might be like what a celebration of America like really is. Yeah. Um, Okay, at Alan Singh, the next response is, they're blowing up a balloon. It's gonna pop, you know it. All right. Whatever satisfies you at Alan Singh. What are you blowing up to honor America? Dan K says, my credit rating. Yep, yep your credit rating, your numerical score of worth. Uh, yeah, that's a good thing to blow up. Okay, uh, Tim 
at T Schnorr sent a photo, a, a gif, a gif. I want to remind Tim that this is a radio and podcast, and so I have to try and describe this visual image with audio technology. It's a man in the cold. It says below zero. Like, I must be missing a reference. Maybe it's some Game of Thrones thing. I don't know. I haven't seen many TV shows. Sorry, Tim. And last, last but not least, Chris K. right on theme today. What are you blowing up to honor America? Chris K. is blowing up the patriarchy. Woo, thanks, Chris K. You saved us from patriarchy. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I, I appreciate it. So, is that it? Am I done for today? I guess so. I guess I'll just reiterate the reason why I'm speaking here to you today. Are you hearing me? A woman? A woman's voice on the radio for once? It's because Chuck is getting surgery tomorrow and he cannot catch COVID. So he's got to get a COVID test today. And he's got to make sure he doesn't get COVID because he's going to get surgery tomorrow. And surgery, that's when somebody, you know, cuts you open with your consent. And, you know, that's serious. And (laughs) you know I'm sending Chuck my best vibes telepathically. Telepathically. You can email him if you want, but I think telepathically is just as good. Like, so, yeah. Thanks for listening today my demon is on my butt <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride thank you for listening to this is hell for more interview hell and to support the show visit thisishell.com is